Hey guys, welcome to Precision Nutrition's The Complete Fitness Professional Podcast. I'm Dr. John Berardi, co-founder of Precision Nutrition, and if you're not familiar with us, over the last 15 years, we've become the world's largest online nutrition, fitness, and health coaching company. Most interesting for health and fitness pros, we've turned the lessons learned coaching over 200,000 clients into a complete nutrition and health coaching system called the Precision Nutrition Certification. It's the industry's most recognized career-changing coaching system anywhere. In this podcast, which is a mix of recorded articles, interviews, and roundtable discussions, myself and my Precision Nutrition colleagues will coach you on growing your business, helping more people, and becoming a better coach. We'll help you become more than a personal trainer, strength coach, or nutritionist. We'll help you become the complete fitness professional. So let's get started. Hey guys, JB here. Just wanted to welcome you to this video seminar. I record this seminar at a live event in London, England. And in the seminar, we'll be talking about the future of nutrition and body transformation. One look around the industry is all it takes to recognize something really big is happening. Changes are coming fast, and if you blink, you might miss them. That's why in this seminar, I get out my crystal ball. I outline the biggest changes coming to fitness and nutrition in the next five years. And if you're interested in working out and eating well, I know you'll enjoy this. But if you work in the field, you can't miss it. So get comfortable, get out a pen and paper for notes, and enjoy the show. Today's topic obviously is nutrition and body transformation uh, in the future. So I particularly love talking about this concept because it's a chance to kind of predict what this field will look like, but even more importantly to you, what your career will look like in the next few years. And I think I have kind of an interesting perspective on it that, that maybe you haven't thought a lot about before but it'll be a fun exercise to go through together, that's for sure. Whenever thinking about the future, we always have, I don't know, people in general do this weird thing, right? It happens in technology, it happens in consumer services, and it happens in nutrition and fitness. Whenever we predict the future, we think that it's gonna be weird and really different. Right? I mean, just go back to the Jetsons and you used to watch that show, right? And they were gonna, we're, by now, we should have the flying cars and the conveyor belt that sends us from bed to the door with the little food, I don't know, capsules, right? Well, we have the technology to do most of that stuff, but our life doesn't look that much different than it did then, right? So what ends up happening is we predict that the future is gonna be wildly different and we're gonna feel the difference. It's gonna look really different. But then when it comes, you're like, oh, it kind of looks like the past with just small things that are, make my life operate a, a tiny bit differently. So I almost want to warn you, right? As we go through these things today, um, they're going to sound like they're sort of cataclysmic shifts. It's going to change everything. And you might be scared about some things, and there's, there's also going to be an opportunity to see in other things. But remember that change doesn't work in that crazy way. It's just... There's, there's a big paradigm shift, but your life doesn't look a lot different, okay? And the reason I say this is because if you don't do the paradigm shift, that's when problems occur. Because if you don't shift with the direction that the field or the industry or the products or whatever are shifting, life kind of looks the same, but all of a sudden you become obsolete. 
and you never understand why, right? Think about what happens with the sort of computers, for example. Like, there's a whole generation of people now who life doesn't look that different to, but they can't figure out their place in it. And they're generally older people who haven't learned how to use the internet or Facebook or Twitter, right? They're like, ah, I'm kind of obsolete, but what, what happened? And that's how change actually works. Unless you change with it, you become obsolete and you don't even know why because the world isn't that different. You're just not getting clients anymore or jobs or you don't fit into this career. And while that again can seem scary, I want you instead of thinking of all the ways that you're screwed, think about the opportunities that each thing presents because that's going to set you up very, very well for the future. Okay? So it's small changes that you'll see, but big paradigm shifts. And that's what we're going to center on today. What are the big paradigm shifts in this field that are taking place right now? So the first one, the first major paradigm shift that some of you have probably felt, but is going to make a lot of things different in your work. I'm assuming you're all fitness professionals or work with clients in some capacity. If you think about what our jobs were, I don't know, 5, 10, 15 years ago, they were the first exercise overseers, right? So clients would come, they'd join a gym, and you would oversee their exercise. And it wasn't even as complex and dynamic as it is today. It was straightforward, like conditioning stuff. Right? All the stuff that we do with like dynamic mobility and functional movement and prehabilitation exercises didn't exist in personal training. Why? Who did that instead? Physios. That's right. Has anyone gone through FMS or at least know what it is? The functional movement screen. Okay, some of you. You guys know what it is? Okay, so I remember, I know Gray Cook, who was the, in, the developer of that, really well. I remember when he first started talking about it and people were threatening lawsuits and telling him, you can't teach this stuff to personal trainers because it's physical therapy and they're not qualified, able, and they should never do this. And nowadays, there's some part of your practice, whether you've done FMS or not, that integrates movement screening, functional movement, the idea that you have to move well before you load. And tools are developed around this concept, things like Viper and TRX. All of it is a, an attempt to help people move well, right? So that was the start of a shift towards more than just conditioning, exercise, supervision, right? Running on the treadmill or lifting weights. But it's continuing, and you guys see it and feel it. And what I think the real paradigm shift is, is going to be moving from that very basic definition of your job, I follow you around the gym floor while you work out, to a lifestyle manager, if you want to call it that. You can craft your own wording around it, but let's parse it out and see what that looks like. If historically, conditioning is what we oversaw, and I don't just mean like interval training, I mean just working the muscles through bodybuilding type exercises or endurance exercise or whatever, if that was the domain or the scope of our practice, that's starting to fade away, isn't it? Your clients have additional needs, right? And they are not going to hire a physiotherapist and a personal trainer and a nutritionist and a sleep coach and a, and a, and a, right? But the first part is the most important. Your clients are hiring you to do a specific job. Is the job 
to teach them to squat? Is that the job a client wants to hire you for as a fitness professional? I see some yeses and some noes. No. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Unless they're an Olympic lifter or a power lifter and they want to enter competition. 0.0001% of the people that you see generally, right? So there's a tool we use in our business called jobs to be done. And the theory is that people hire a product or a service or a person to do a specific job. If you as the product or the person or the service don't know what the job is, you will not be very successful. If you do know what the job is, you will always have a place. So the most important thing you can do is figure out what that job is. And I'll give you an example. We learned this the hard way with our own coaching program. Uh, we're running the world's largest co online coaching programs. We've, last five years, we've coached over 30,000 people. Okay? And I remember there was this one moment where we had a female client who was on a message board on some other website. And she posted about our coaching program. And she said, well, I guess it's okay. Um, I got some results. And people were like, well, would you recommend it? And she said, no, I wouldn't. And they said, why? And they said, well, because I didn't really need a coach to check in with me regularly. I mean, I did fine without that. But the truth is, I'm not sure if they would have had I needed that. Okay? So I'm like, oh, that sounds weird. So then I looked up this woman. She lost 65 pounds in our coaching program. Okay? And at that point, I could either think that she's a mentally unstable idiot <laughs> or that she hired us to do a different job than we thought the job was. We thought women hired us to help them get in shape. But what they were really hiring us for was to get in shape and forge a meaningful connection with someone as a coach or a mentor. You get it? So we were doing a job that didn't match the job she hired us for, and therefore we didn't get a positive review. She wouldn't have hired us again, even though we did the job really well that she wasn't exactly looking for, right? So this is what we think about. What is your job? Clients are hiring you for a bunch of stuff, okay? I'd suggest one level of it is to change their life in some meaningful way, to feel healthier, look better, have more enthusiasm and vigor about life, right? They're not hiring you to exercise, but that's all we've ever done in this field. Teach them exercises, and then obsess over their technique in performing their exercises. And they're like, that's good, but that's not what I really am looking for. If you tell me that's what I need, maybe. So I suspect, though, that people need all of this other stuff. And that in the next few years, this will be part of the definition of personal trainer, or maybe we won't even have the word personal trainer anymore. It'll just be fitness professional or some other kind of professional. I mean, we need a name that, that sort of people can feel like, oh, that's what I want to hire, you know? But you also don't want to be attached to old ideas about things. So really, I mean, we're talking about conditioning. We're talking about movement. We're talking about food choices. And then we're talking about eating behaviors, which are different, and we'll unpack those in a minute. We're talking about self-management, and we're talking about self-care. If you hope to impact someone's life in a meaningful way, someone who's paying you a lot of money to do that, these are all areas that you're going to have to dip into in some degree, okay? 
You can't create health, you can't create fitness from a body that doesn't move well, have some level of fitness, eat well, make congruent eating decisions, care for itself, or manage its own time and priorities well. So let's look at each one individually, okay? So first of all, conditioning. So what do I mean when I say that? I mean what we do. Strength exercise, power exercise, endurance exercise. I'm talking about lifting weights, doing intervals, doing cardio. The focus of this particular domain is adaptation, right? Exercise adaptation. You do this stuff and it's hard, so your body adapts and can be stronger and more equipped to do it tomorrow, okay? But it's a very metabolic thing, right? And it's very now, right? It's not the long term of your health. This is like an adaptation that's in line with the goal you have today. I'd like to lose weight today, but if I lost all the weight that I wanted to lose today, tomorrow, I don't want to lose weight anymore. That's I'm done, right? So I have something else in the long term. Weight loss should only be a very small percentage of someone's life. And then you have maintenance, which is a whole different set of goals, right? So that's conditioning. So let's unpack the others. All the stuff that we've never been taught or trained properly to do, we're starting to get that now. And what will be expected of you into the future. I promise you this. So movement. Okay, so this is assessment, right? It's how is my client moving to begin with? And, you know, as Gray Cook often says, first move well, then move often or load the movement. So his whole concept is, why would you have someone working super hard on day one, which is a lot of trainers do. I'm, oh, you should see I had a new group of clients today, I totally kicked their ass, they were totally covered in sweat and they're going to be sore and it's awesome, they're going to love it and they'll come back for more, right? But if they're not moving well, that's a problem, okay? So we're going to be looking at evaluation. We're going to be looking at realignment of bodies. We sit in chairs more than we ever have in human history, right? So we're having these alignment issues, right? Our nervous systems, our fascia, all of our soft tissues. We work with people on realignment of all of this stuff, new signals, new tissues, and then we can start doing conditioning, right? And the focus is achieving high quality movement and pain-free, safe, functional, long-run bodies. And now this isn't the future, this is now. Most of the best clubs in the US and Canada where I'm coming from are including some form of movement screen for all new members, okay? First, move well, then you can move often, all right? So that's movement, all right? Now this shouldn't come as a shock to many of you because even if you haven't heard it called in this way before, I know you're doing some of it right now, okay? But let's delve into the other areas that are coming. And that's just, if you've seen one of these little things, that's the, the FMS's way of uh, a screening movement. Next, we'll talk about food choices. And this is where I really like to parse out two different things. Because most people, when they think about nutrition, is food, right? It's this slide, but there's a whole nother world of nutrition. Food choices is what you eat, how much you eat, when you eat. The focus is having a better nutrition status so in other words, if I assess your macronutrients and your micronutrients, you're all good. And the right stuff, the right amount, at the right time. But to me, that only makes up a tiny, teeny part of nutrition coaching, okay? The rest is eating behaviors. So when do you eat? Who do you eat with? How quickly do you eat? 
What is your food culture and your beliefs? What is your budget and what are your preferences? The focus here is making better choices within context. It's so easy to give nutrition advice out of context. The best example is what I talked about today for the people who were here earlier. Um, a person comes up to you and says, you're in wicked shape, tell me what you do. And you write it down for them and say, yeah, do this and you'll be awesome like me. But isn't that out of context? Because that's within the context of his life and out of the context of my life. So we're talking about choices within context. How will you know context? You have to learn about your clients, folks. You have to get to know them. There's no way around it. And you know, we're talking about gaining both nutrition and an enjoyment of eating that's consistent with who you are as a person. So this is our, the CEO of our company, my business partner. We started Precision Nutrition together, Phil Caravaggio. And do you got, anyone know what that device is on his face? What is it? It's, it's Google Glass, right? So we're doing a development project with Google right now, looking at measuring nutrition using the glass. Okay, so think about the opportunities that are available. In the past, how did you figure out if, how someone was eating? Tell me, how did you figure out? I know some of you have assessed how clients are eating. How? You ask them. So what do you do? How do you get that? Food diary, okay. Any other new techie ways of doing it? Photos, yeah, take pictures of your meals and send them to me, right? That's how we've done it, right? And then what you do, you, uh, you or maybe you ask them to do it. God help you if you do. You ask them to plug it into Fit Day or some other food calculator online, and then they figure out how many proteins, carbs, fats, and everything they're eating, right? But what is that? That's a food choice type of analysis, right? Uh, do you get any information on eating behavior from that? None. You don't know when they eat unless you have them write down the times. You don't know how long it's taking unless you ask them how long their meal took. You don't know who they're eating with and under what conditions they're eating. But with this, we can actually look at that, can't we? It's really awesome. I can say, oh, look at that. When you are eating with these certain people, because I can see through your eyes for the first time in history, you eat more. And when you're eating with these people, you eat less. When you come home late from work, and I'm assuming it's late from work because I saw you just walk in the door and it's 8 p.m., you eat this way. When you get home at a normal time and eat with your family, you eat this way. Um, when you are eating in public, you eat a lot faster or slower than when you're eating at home. Uh, whenever broccoli is presented to you, you don't take it. But whenever asparagus is, you do take that. Here's 10 other green vegetables you might like. Do you see how there's this amazing opportunity in the future to get into people's nutrition in a way that we never could before? In a way that's much more meaningful, right? Right now we're just doing this weird ass math thing. Right, write down what you eat, I'm gonna turn it into math and then I'll take the math and subtract some stuff and then I'll turn it back into food. It's weird, right? And it ignores like 75% of why people eat anyway. So we're talking about tracking food behavior. And you don't just have to wait till Google Glass. There's actually a device on the market right now that's about the size of like an iPod shuffle, one of those little tiny square ones that you could pin to your shirt. And it takes something like a few pictures a second throughout the course of an entire day. So you can actually track your whole day through pictures and that is available now. I mean, I think it's always annoying when people are like, hey, I'm going to take a picture of my meal with their phone, right? And I mean, what if you didn't have to even do that? You didn't have to interrupt the flow of your life to capture relevant data. And right now, where things are at is, if you were to get this data, it would be super annoying to use. What are you gonna do, watch your client's entire day, one client's entire day to figure out what it was like? 
No, and that's why we're developing apps and algorithms which can actually analyze, oh look, this type of picture tells me that they're eating now. I'm going to measure the time from when they start eating to stop. And the computer does that. It's an algorithm. Or it actually sees the food that you're eating and analyzes it. So no human has to touch it, right? Or it looks at types of foods and makes recommendations around that. Oh, it looks like you don't like this type of stuff. Maybe you would enjoy this type of stuff. And it's all automated. That's what we're working on right now. And that's going to be the future. Right? So this will be available to you and your clients. And it, right now it's kind of expensive with Google Glass, but it's not going to be forever. This will be very affordable for people. And I'm not saying you have to use it, but it's a tool. It's a tool that will be here. And if you don't know how to use it or you think it's weird or you tell people it's stupid, they're just going to find someone else who can help them with it. Go ahead. Do you think most of people will agree on giving you the feeling of their day? Right. Oh, that's a good question, right? Will most people agree to letting me watch their day? Absolutely not. I hope so. I don't want to look at their freaking day either. I want my computer to do it, right? I want it to see it as pixels on a screen, and I want it to just interpret it that way. And so, I mean, yes, there are possible problems. That's, I'm going to eat cake and I take the glasses off, right? <laughs> I think that's very realistic. Yeah, exactly. But before we point out all the problems, I like to, again, think of all the opportunities that exist for this, right? But that's no different to what people do now when they do food diaries and they're more honest. That's exactly right, right? And we, we're just using a primitive method for them to lie to us, <laughs> if, you, if you think they're all lying to you, right? But, I mean, that, that opens up a whole other you know, situation, which is, why don't you have enough trust with your clients so that they're not lying to you? And I'm not pointing you out particularly, but that's another opportunity, isn't it? Build trust with someone so that they feel like they can be completely honest with you, so they don't feel like they have to lie. So again, loads of opportunities here. Okay, so let's talk next about self-management. Okay, so you guys are familiar, and I, I don't know if it's as big here as it is in the US and Canada, but there's a lot of talk nowadays about mindfulness and meditation and paying attention and being attuned, right? You guys are hearing about the, the, it's showing up in fitness magazines, yes? I, I like to call it self-management because all the other stuff just sounds weird and new agey to me and I can't get behind that, right? If, if that works for you, that's totally fine. But for me, there's actually a guy named Jeremy Hunter at um, Peter Drucker School of Management in California who, who created a whole program called self-management. And the idea is that you will, over the course of your life, work on how you show up in the world. You'll work on you as parent, you as partner, you as coach, right? You're going to work on that. Uh, whether intentionally or unintentionally, you're going to improve, grow, develop, or get worse. Right? So self-management is figuring out what your priorities are. Are your beliefs in line with your priorities? Uh, what can you do to get them in line? Right? That's self-management. And your clients need that help too. Right? What's an example of not being in alignment? Ambivalence. You guys know what ambivalence is? It's when you want to do something, but you also don't. Right? I'll give you a really good example from my own life. I have a little boy. He's two. He's this beautiful bundle of energy. He's amazing. Like, runs in the room. He's got the biggest smile in the world. Makes me smile. Really big, too. Right? So my little guy thinks it's appropriate. I, I like to sleep in until about 8 every day. He thinks it's appropriate to come into my room at about 7, jump on the bed, run across my genitals, <laughs> headbutt me, and say, Daddy, wake up! Daddy, wake up! Daddy, wake up! Right? That's what he likes to do every morning, about an hour before I want to wake up. Okay, 
So I bitch and moan about this and complain about it all the time, right, to my wife. And she's like, you're such a complainer. I, while you were out today, I put a lock on the door. Lock the door and he won't bother you, right? So damn me if I've never locked the door, right? That's ambivalence, right? I want to get my extra hour of sleep really badly, but what do I give up if I lock that door? That beautiful little person is not gonna come in and see me. He's not gonna cuddle with me and I'm gonna lose that time, right? So I never locked the door even though I said that's what I wanted, right? Does that sound familiar at all? I mean, maybe in your own life, but in the lives of your clients? Do you ever hear a client tell you, I really wanna lose weight, but I can't work out five days a week and I have to have alcohol with my friends on the weekends. <laughs> and there's these certain foods I'm just not willing to give up. What do we call them? Lazy, undisciplined, they don't want it badly enough, right? That's what we think about them, right? But I'm the same then, I guess. I mean, isn't that the height of laziness to not walk over that door and lock it? Clients aren't lazy, they just have competing priorities and they haven't figured out how to align their behaviors with their priorities. They need your help in doing that. If they tell you their goal is to lose weight, but they're unwilling to do some of the behaviors, you need to help reconcile the two with them, and that is self-management. I mean, we do that through provoking gentle self-discovery, and that sounds all wussy and stuff, but I say it that way very specifically, because in the fitness industry, there's very little that we do that's gentle, okay? We get out like the megaphone and scream in their face, you don't want it badly enough. 10 more, come on, you can totally do this. Oh yeah, that's not gentle self-discovery in any way. We help them align their words and their actions, and we coach them past fear and ambivalence. So the focus is helping them get an alignment, and the truth is, fitness is so easy when it's resonant with your life. It's impossible when it conflicts with your life. Impossible. So let's talk about the last one, self-care. It's how much sleep do you get? Okay, that's self-care. What are your recovery practices? Yes, I know you're type A and you're willing to, I don't know what people say, put your balls through the wall or whatever, but what do you do to recover? Is that part of our program, right? How do you manage stress? The focus is building strategies for self-care and making it part of your fitness plan. Not just some extra stuff that they need to worry about on their own, but have you built in recovery days? Have you asked them what types of things recharge and rejuvenate them? I know for me, it's getting out into the woods for like a one hour hike. If I do that once a week, I can deal with all the complexity of my life. If I don't, after three or four weeks, I'm a raging turbo asshole who feels like he's gonna dive off a bridge, you know? So what do they do to recharge and recover? Help them discover that. Is it movement and physical activity? Is it something else, okay? Part of the plan, part of your job in the next few years, okay? To me, it's just becoming the complete fitness professional, right? It's serving the needs of your clients. Can someone be healthy without self-care, appropriate self-management, better eating behaviors, and great movement? I don't know, maybe, maybe. But if they're hiring you, it's because they're not there, and these are the things that'll probably get them there. And it all works together, right? I mean, one of the best ones is sleep, right? So you're like, okay, I, I wanna change someone's diet. I want them to eat fewer carbs. Well, if they're dramatically sleep deprived, that may be impossible. It's like telling someone to get better looking. Just get 
better looking. I tried, I couldn't do it. People who are sleep deprived have intense carbohydrate cravings. So they end up eating more carbs, less proteins, okay? Fix sleep and you may fix their diet without changing any diet or giving them any stupid rules that they hate you for, right? So it all plays together. So I think we need to become the complete fitness professional. Now, I'll just breeze through these really quickly. I got my first personal training job when I was 17. I paid my way through undergrad, masters, PhD, trained people for a long time because I was in school for a really long time. And uh, eventually I figured some of this stuff out through great coaching and mentorship. And when I made this shift in my own coaching practice is when we developed what we have today at PN, which is this large coaching program, 30,000 clients, over 450,000 pounds lost. These are people we've coached directly through work with coaches. And I'll just you know, show you a few photos, okay? These are people who've coached with us between six and 12 months. And I mean, some of them are gonna be really impressive. Patrick lost 152 pounds. Um, Cheryl, 68 pounds. I'll just breeze through them. I, you can see some dramatic transformations here. And I'll tell you the point of showing all these in a minute. Aside from the fact that we have like 600 of these, you can just see dramatic changes in their bodies. I can't tell you about what it's done to their lives. Uh, you can guess though, okay? Sustainable change. Uh, one of the things I'm most proud of is the compliance rate, but I'm gonna get back to that in a second. The reason I show this to you is because figuring out how to deal with all the different aspects of a person's life in terms of health and fitness has made what I just showed you an outcome that's reliable and consistent for us, okay? So in other words, this isn't like that one lucky client that seems to have the perfect mix of psychology and glandular constitution or whatever, and they just come at the right time and we're the right coach for them and magically we got a success story like this. This is pretty predictable and reliable for us. In fact, we know if people are consistent with our coaching program over a certain level, in other words, if they do what we ask them to do over a certain percentage of the time, what I showed you is exactly what's gonna happen, which is really cool. And so it sort of points at the development for you of a consistent and reliable system of touching all these different areas and what is possible when you do that. Now again, aside from the photos, which are always inspiring for me, is the rate of compliance, and I don't like that word, I like to call it consistency. But the idea is that if you look at prescription medication, and this is just the data of heart disease, diabetes, and cancer drug compliance, life-saving medications for most people, they take them only 55% of the time. So you've been diagnosed with a disease that's pretty serious, you've been given medication to fix or treat that, and you only take it half the time. That's why I always joke with people. In fitness, we always say, oh, my clients, they're always looking for the magic pill, right? So I say, well, if we had that pill, they'd only take it Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, <laughs> okay? But in, but in our program, what I'm proud of is uh, when we prescribe exercise, and this is the data aggregate from a year-long program, they do it almost 70% of the time, so seven out of 10 sessions they do. Okay, and when it comes to our nutrition practices, it's 72%. So again, just over seven out of 10 over the course of a year. That's the data I'm most proud of. We found ways to consistently and reliably help people do what they already said they want to do. And then that system helps them get the result that they said that they want, okay? 
So I mean, that's led to our certification. Some of you probably have heard about it. I know some of you in here are actually in it. But over the last few years, we've taught fitness professionals how to do exactly what I'm talking about here. I don't want this to become a big commercial, but I just want you to know that after doing the coaching that we do for the last few years, people are like, you gotta teach me how to do that. And so we created a program specifically for that. Okay, so let's move on to the next big shift that I think is gonna change the way you see your work and the way that you might do your work. It's moving from, I don't know, yeah, I'll say it this way, just having a big boner over exercise science towards change science. I mean, I, I, I love the fitness industry. I've been in it all of my adult life. Yet we get so excited about going to another workout seminar, okay? Oh, I'm gonna learn the new stuff, the Vipers and the TRXs and the zoos and whatever else. We go to all of those. I go to them too, okay? But if you're not spending an hour in a change science class or psychology class, for every hour you're spending in an exercise science class, you're missing the biggest opportunity of your career, okay? There are people who are much more educated who are teaching change science than who are teaching our exercise science, okay? And that's not a knock on anyone. It's just that change science is sort of like a legitimate field. How to help someone change is the whole point of their field. Exercise science is totally different. What does exercise science look at? Not fitness science. You don't get any grant money for that, right? So the people teaching in our domain don't even have evidence-based practices. They're just like, oh, I coach a lot of people and I think that this would work really well and you follow their advice. And generally it's not bad advice. But in change science, they actually have really hard data suggesting that certain practices help people stick to programs longer. Certain practices help people change their lives in a transformative way. And we spend very little time with those people in fitness. Yet that's exactly what people are hiring us for, transformative change. It's a weird thing. So, I mean, if you want to get introduced to some of the concepts, here are some great books on this subject. Uh, motivational interviewing is probably the best, although it's highly clinical. So this is a book you're gonna have to revisit lots of times over the course of your career. And you'll be thankful that you did, but sometimes it's hard to get through because it's clinical, right? It uses words that we don't use in fitness. You have to learn what they mean and then figure out how to apply them. But it's probably the best book on this idea. It's one of the most effective change methodologies in the world today. They're teaching it in medicine now so that doctors presumably could practice it in some way. And they're teaching in a whole host of other change type fields, drug addictions and things like that. Switch is a more popular press book that sort of understands some of the concepts of motivational interviewing and outlines them in an interesting and kind of reader-friendly way. The blackmail diet you'll never find, but it sort of hints at something which is getting leverage over people. The idea is usually people are motivated for the first couple weeks of a new intervention. I'm going to learn to speak French, or I'm gonna to learn to get in shape, or play the piano, and you're pumped, and then what happens when the motivation goes away? You start thinking of all the reasons why you never really wanted to do this anyway. So how do you get leverage over people during that point? Okay, so blackmail diet proposes you blackmail them. Have them give you something of value and then threaten to destroy it or break it or give it to someone else when they don't follow through. Um, the Power of Less is another fantastic one. Crucial Conversations is a lot about the conversations that you have with clients. And uh, Influence is fantastic. This is a great book that you can apply toward business, towards coaching, towards new client acquisition, towards helping the clients who you do acquire change. 
Um, it's all the best practices of influence, how the world sort of is always influencing them to do maybe sometimes the opposite of what you're teaching, and how can you fight fire with fire? How can you be as powerful an influencer as the media? You know you hate that, right? I don't know where I come from. People are like, I've been working with this client for six months. We started to finally make progress, and they watched Dr. Oz. Now, you guys know who Dr. Oz is? Oh, so good. I'm moving here. Never have to hear that guy again. <laughs> um, but he's just one of these TV doctors who's always giving advice that's, I don't know, commercially motivated, I'll say, for a polite way of saying it. One of the biggest epiphanies I had in this space, and I'll just leave this with you and then we'll move on to the next one, is this idea that no matter how much I cared, no matter how much I desperately and passionately wanted to help clients change, no matter how much I love fitness and it changed my life and how I want it to help change other people's lives, not only could I not be helping people in that condition, I could be making them less likely to change. And it never occurred to me that no matter how passionate I was, I always figured, well, at worst case, I wasn't going to make a difference. But there's no way I'd make them worse with all my passion, drive, and enthusiasm. But I realized that that is the most likely outcome of a passionate person who doesn't understand change. Because of your passion, you get in their faces. You want them to change so badly, you grab them by the hand and you almost drag them towards change. But what happens when you drag someone by the hand? They dig their heels in, right? So your passion and enthusiasm is actually making them less likely to come your direction. It's the most counterintuitive thing to a fitness person, but when you study change psychology, you're like, oh shit, I get it. And I've been doing that all along. Wow, I'm gonna stop that. So again, start digging in. You'll see a lot of that in motivational interviewing, the idea of resistance, okay? Clients are resisting something. And in many cases, it's you. They're resisting the other human that's trying to make them change. Okay, in a way that they're not ready for, or able to do, or whatever. Okay, so next, best practice number three, or paradigm shift. Shifting from best practices, or a best practice model, to a limiting factor removal model. And I'll explain what that means. A best practice approach is sitting down and thinking about all the things that you think are healthy and important. Okay? So what might they be? What are some of those things for a new client, possibly? Tell me, what are all the things that you think, oh, obviously new clients have to work on this? Hydration. Hydration, drink more water. What else? Sleep. 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 Get more sleep. Awesome. What else? Snacks. Snacks in between meals, so you don't have a big meal. What else? Anything else? Vegetables. Vegetables. Okay. Managing stress. What else? Food. Don't eat processed food. What else? Cereal. Eat breakfast every day. What else? Yeah, don't drink alcohol. Okay, these are all the things that you consider best practices for health and fitness, yes? We can agree on that? These are best practices. So a best practice approach is when a client shows up, you put all those down on a list and you give them to new clients right away. So if you're gonna follow my program, you need to do these best practices. And you might say, well, you just listed like 10 of them. I'm not dumb enough to give them 10. I'll just give them five, okay? There's another approach. We're gonna talk about it right now. But let's think about some common things, okay? 
habits for this week. And I've seen this. A fitness professional gave me their list. So they were proactive. They were better than the average fitness professional. A new client joined. They put down a list. This is going to be your program. Okay? I'm going to hand this to you and there's going to be a couple articles to read and this is the front page. You're going to exercise three times this week. You're going to sleep eight hours a night. You're going to eat breakfast with every meal. I want you to drink two cups of water and eat five servings of vegetables daily. Now, honestly, that doesn't seem like a whole lot, does it? To you. Yeah, that's like, you know, within five minutes of waking up for me, right? So that's one approach. You guys heard of CrossFit, yeah? Okay. So CrossFit, I mean, they champion this really easy nutritional model, right? So it's eat green vegetables and lean meats, snack on seeds and nuts, avoid most starches and never eat sugar. That's their mantra. They're like, look, we got nutrition in like one sentence. How much easier can you make it, right? But what is this approach? This is a best practice approach. This is the stuff that we think makes the biggest difference, so we list it and give it to you right now. A limiting factor approach is very different, and the problem with the best practice approach is if you give people that list and you care enough to ask them whether they think they can do it, the answer will probably be like, on a scale of zero to 10, three. Three out of 10, that I could probably do that, okay? Limiting factor approach, on the other hand, is what's the one thing, one thing only, that's in your way right now from losing fat, building muscle, lowering your cholesterol, sleeping better at night, whatever the case may be. What's the one thing? And let's just start working on that and don't do anything else, okay? It's a limiting factor approach. So I'll give you an example of how that may play out in a very obvious example. Anemia. So you have a woman, female client, who is anemic and it's a result of low iron. So would you ask them, oh, well, you feel like shit all the time, you have no energy, can't work out, can barely get up out of bed. So here's what we need to do. Green vegetables, lean meats, nuts and seeds, blah, 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 blah. Give them your best practices. Work out three times a week. Well, you could do that. And hopefully, maybe by some random chance, the planet's aligned and they fix their iron problem. Or you could give them an iron supplement. That's a limiting factor approach. If you give them an iron supplement in two weeks, their blood iron goes up, they start to make more red blood cells, their blood cells start working better, and they start feeling great. They're like, thank you, you changed my life. And all you had to do is ask them to take one pill a day. Okay? Limiting factor approach versus best practice approach. For most clients, something like taking a serving of multivitamin and fish oil each day might be a neat limiting factor removal. What are we removing in this case? Any ideas? Possibly a vitamin deficiency and maybe an omega-3 deficiency, yes? Uh, there's data coming out of the UK, US, and Canada right now showing, and I've talked about this in my previous session, that when you take prison inmates and school children, and you give them one multivitamin and one fish oil, their incidence of violent and antisocial behavior goes down by 60%, and their cognitive test scores go up. Now, why is that? Well, it's not because fish oil makes you smarter, per se. It's because they probably all had subclinical nutrition deficiencies. We fix them with this very shotgun type of approach, and all of a sudden, they work better. They think better, they live better, okay? So that's a limiting factor removal rather than a best practice approach. There also happens to be this cool side effect of doing this, which is that's way easier than doing all those nutrition things I was going to tell you to do instead on day one. Let's say someone's borderline dehydrated. 
they're gonna feel like crap all the time. So we fix them with, here's a water bottle with my brand name on it. Drink one when we're working out together, I'll fill it up for you. Drink one right after, I'll watch you drink that one too, and then just have a cup of water with each of three meals today, and we're gonna fix your dehydration. You're gonna feel fantastic. We didn't have to do anything else. If someone's dehydrated, that's fantastic. If they're not, that's not what you're working on today. They make bad choices at lunch. That's where maybe your snacking strategy came up or even a new breakfast strategy. So again, this is just a principle, right? Removing limiting factors. Relentlessly seek and find the thing that's in someone's way right now that's keeping them from losing weight or feeling good or whatever we talked about. And just do that, that one thing, work on that. It syncs up beautifully with the principles of change psychology and it's a physiological approach, isn't it? So if you're more of a science type and you're like, oh, that's psychology crap, this meets your needs. If you're a psychology type, you're like, oh, the science, they worry about too much that. This meets your needs too. The key though with any new practice is assessing confidence, right? We call it the confidence method. If you were to give someone a new practice that addresses their limiting factor, how will you know if they feel good about doing it, if they feel like they can do it, if they feel like you know, there's a chance that they'll be successful. How will you know? You ask them. It's one of the amazing things in the fitness industry that we do a lot of telling and not enough asking, right? And that's not our fault, us in the room. It's actually a legacy we've inherited. We come from this coach and whistle kind of culture. You get out a bullhorn and you shout at people and you're the expert and you know and you need to motivate them with a boot in the ass if required. Okay, that's what we were inherited. But that means we forget to ask stuff. We forget to say, oh, client, do you feel like you have any confidence you can do this? So what we do, and here's how we phrase it. So here's a new practice that I think we should work on maybe for the next two weeks or a month. How confident do you feel that you can do this every day for the next 30 days? Rank it on a scale of zero to 10. Zero being there's no way I can do that, and 10 being absolutely anyone could do that. And what you're looking for is a nine or a 10. If they say anything less, it's not the practice for them. Okay, so the real point was using change psychology. It's going to be required for our jobs in the future, okay? It's going to make a big difference for you too, so that's great also. So shift four, many new practices to small strategic ones, okay? So how often do new habits stick? If you give a person one habit, there's an 85% chance. If they feel confident, they can do it. If you give them two habits, it's like 35% chance. If you give them three, it's less than 10%. So if you give people three new habits to do, you might as well give them none, okay? Actually, it's actually worse than none. Why? Because they're going to fail, and then they're going to be further back confidence-wise than they were before, right? So how do you develop a practice or a habit? Well, one is you have to adopt one new one at a time. It has to be small, something you can do daily, and not just small, but clear, okay? So it has to be something that they know they did or not, right? So work out more is not a good habit because I'm not sure, more than what? More than you? More than me yesterday? So five minutes of intervals today is clear. If you ask me, I either say yes or no, I did it because I'm certain what you mean, okay? That's what a new practice should be. Eat more veggies? No, a specific amount of veggies each day with a meal or whatever. Uh, my hips are tight. Do I get up from my chair every hour and do this exercise? You can't just say stretch at work, okay? So it's a practice that's small and clear. And how will you know if it's small? We already covered this, right? You ask. But you ask in a specific way. 
right? How confident are you that you can do it every day for the next 30 days? Gives them a framework and it's clear, right? And then they rank it. So it's one, it's small, it's daily, it's easy to understand and measure, and you get nine or 10 on confidence scale. What if they give you six? You make it easier or smaller, okay? And one little side note, it can't be small. Don't ever call it small, okay? You just told me you had a bunch of high flyer clients, okay? So let's say they're executives, business people, maybe they have advanced degrees, maybe they make a lot of money and they can afford you. Now you're gonna say something like this. Well, I learned in this change psychology class that habits have to be small. So I don't think you're capable of taking on a lot right now. So I'm just gonna give you a little baby habit, just a little one. How condescending is that, right? You can't say that to never say that. Uh, what you say is it's strategic. It's the one thing I know is gonna make the biggest difference right away. Okay, let's work on that. So shift number five, from a fixed place to mobile experiences, okay? Um, so why do we love this stuff up here, right? Mobile phones, why do we love them, okay? I mean, aside from the fact you can talk on them and type on them and they look really cool in your hand, it took what was once a fixed experience and allowed you to do it anywhere, right? To talk on the phone, you had to stand in a specific place in your kitchen there was a cord tethering you to the wall. You're a prisoner of that phone, right? What about computing? You had to sit in a special room of your house with a big box on a desk, right? Now you can do almost everything that both of those devices offered and anywhere you want. It's a beautiful sunny day. I'm gonna do it outside today, okay? That's why we love this so much. Think about how that applies to fitness. TRX. That's a workout in my pocket. I remember when TRX first came out, and I was like, how is this company doing like $30 million in sales? They just have some straps. What is that? They're not selling you straps. They're selling you a mobile experience. They're selling you the opportunity to not be locked in a gym to work out. How cool is that, right? And you've seen other ones. You've seen the battling ropes, and they're doing it on the beach by the ocean. You've seen the prowlers, and I love this guy. He's totally puking in the background. <laughs> You've seen these exercise medicine balls. You can do kettlebells by the track. Uh, I talked with the Viper group yesterday. You can do this on the beach. Uh, what we're tapping into is a fundamental human need to not be tethered to something, right? Where we can move in the place we want to move, in the way we want to move. It's really cool. And it's the future. It's what's going to be happening. Now, if you work for a gym or own a gym, this might scare you a little bit, but I don't think it should. I think you could take the mobile experience out, right? I think it doesn't have to be locked in the gym. There's opportunity there, and you can make money off of that too, okay? So from one person doing everything to technology supported. Okay, we did a, an app with George St. Pierre recently, who's a longtime client of mine, with a company right here in London called Zolmo. And this is cool, and I'm gonna leave it with this, okay? So what happens is, George takes you through an assessment workout. So you do it following George along, and he's talking to you in his French-Canadian accent and stuff, and you think it's all cute. And then at the end, you rate how hard it was. Okay, and then from there, it learns about you based on your intake questionnaire, about how hard the workout was for you, and then it generates a program based on that information. And then it generates a recovery profile because it asks you every few hours whether you're sore or how you recovered from the last workout. And then it gets really smart and it plans your whole program for you and then it tracks everything. How consistent have you been and all that. You know how much it costs? Like six pounds. So think about that. How much do you charge an hour? And this costs six pounds for the rest of your life. 
okay? And this is what's coming. Now, don't be scared. Like, oh, shit, this is going to totally put me out of business. I better switch careers. I'm going to go into banking. No, it's an opportunity for us, okay? It's an opportunity to see all these different spaces where we can affect change outside of the gym. And there's all this other technology. I can't go through it all because I'm out of time. I got too enthusiastic and excited with you guys today. Um, but there's all this stuff, and you'll get it all in the notes, okay? So there's a bunch of technologies that are managing all of the admin side of things, all of the annoying non-coachy things, the check-in, the follow-up, the consistency, the compliance, all of that. There's apps that are taking care of all that. Lyft right here, literally a person could plug in all their practices that they're working on right now and just track whether they do it or not. And you can get access to that and see how they did this week. You don't even have to ask them. Okay, it's all tracked. I think this app is free. This is just a glimpse of our coaching program and how we manage the data with all of our clients. So in the end, there's a bunch of criteria. Web-enabled, geographically independent, data-driven, expert-led, socially supportive, affordable, anonymous, and gym-independent. You'll see all that later, but it's the criterion for a lot of this stuff. So quick summary, trainer to lifestyle manager, exercise to change, best practice to limiting factor, many habits to few or small but strategic, fixed experience to mobile, and coach does everything, to technology supported. That's what's coming, folks. It's inevitable. Now that you know what it is, you can start thinking it through. How do I fit into all of this? How will I change and develop and grow so that I have a place and a career in all of this as it changes? Because if people don't know about it, we'll have that thing. They'll look around, there'll still be gyms, there'll still be people working out, and they won't fit in, they'll be obsolete, and they'll say, what the hell happened? This is what happens. And that's the end of my time with you guys today. Thank you very much for being here. I appreciate it. Well, I'm back. Hope you enjoyed the seminar. If it were up to me, you'd walk away remembering a few things. First, there's a major paradigm shift that's happening in fitness right now. In the past, personal trainers just thought about exercise and that's all they were really allowed to talk about. Today, they're expected to help with lifestyle coaching. Things like movement, exercise, food choices, eating behaviors, self-management, and self-care. Next, to be successful in fitness, it's not enough to live your life in the physiology world. You also need to study change psychology, and that means limiting factors over best practices, few strategic practices over several new habits, and leveraging technology to not only help you do your work, but to help clients remain engaged and accountable. Just remember, if you're either paid to help others improve their health, or you just help friends and family because you can, it's important to have a process, one that helps people evaluate the best way of eating and living for their body. In the end, if you want some help developing your own coaching system, I'd be happy to lend a hand. In the coming weeks through our Precision Nutrition Certification course, I'll be taking a group of trainers and coaches and teaching them how to deliver world-class advice to every type of clients. It's the industry's most respected education and certification program. And if you like this seminar, I know you'll get a lot out of it. To find out more, just click the link below this video. Because if you're interested in learning a proven system, developing your education, and boosting your credentials, then I know you'll love the certification. Check it out. Okay, everyone, that's it for this week's edition of Precision Nutrition's The Complete Fitness Professional Podcast. For more information about how to become the complete fitness professional yourself and for some awesome free nutrition and coaching resources, come visit us on the web at www.precisionnutrition.com. 
You could also visit us on Facebook or on Twitter at InsidePN. Talk to you next time.